Chapter Twenty Four of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A death warrant. Carrington was not a coward. He was not even a cautious man, and the bitter malice that filled his heart, together with riotous impulses that seethed in his brain, prompted him to go straight to the arrow wrecked vengeance upon Taylor, and dragged Marion Harlan back to the big house he had bought for her. But a certain memory of Taylor's face, when the latter had been pursuing him through the big house, a knowledge of Taylor's ability to inflict punishment, together with a divination that Taylor would not hesitate to kill him, should there arise the slightest opportunity, all these considerations served to deter Carrington from undertaking any rash action. Taylor's opposition to his desires enraged Carrington. He had met and conquered many men, and he had coolly and deliberately robbed many others, himself standing secure and immune behind legal barriers. And he had seen his victims writhe and squirm and struggle in the meshes he had prepared for them. He had heard them rave and wail and threaten, but not one of them had attempted to inflict physical punishment upon him. Taylor, however, was of the fighting type. On two occasions now, Carrington had been given convincing proof of the man's ability, and he had seen in Taylor's eyes on the latest occasion the implacable gleam of iron resolution, and, when Taylor had gone down, fighting to the last, in the sanguinary battle at the big house, he had not failed to note the indomitability of the man, the tenacious and dogged spirit that knows no defeat, a spirit that would not be denied. And so, though Carrington's desires would have led him to recklessly carry the fight to the arrow, Certain dragging qualms of reluctance dissuaded him from another meeting with Taylor on equal terms. And yet the benevolent passions that gripped the big man would not tolerate the thought of opposition. Taylor was the only man who stood between him and his desires, and Taylor must be removed. During the days of Carrington's confinement to his rooms above the castle, Awaiting the slow healing of the wound Taylor had inflicted upon him, and the many bruises that marred his face, mementos of that terrible punishment Taylor had inflicted upon him, the big man nursed his venomous thoughts and laid plans for revenge upon his enemy. As soon as he was able to appear in Dawes, to undergo without humiliation the inspection of his face by the citizens of the town, for news of his punishment had been whispered broadcast, he boarded a westbound train. He got off at Nogal, a little mining town, sitting at the base of some foothills in the Sangre de Cristo range, some miles from Dawes. He spent three days in Nogal, interrogating the resident manager of Larry's Luck Mine, talking with miners and storekeepers and quizzing men in saloons, 
and at the beginning of the fourth day he returned to Dawes. And about the time Miss Harlan and Taylor were sitting on the rock of the bank of the river, near the arrow, Carrington was in the courthouse at Dawes, leaning over Judge Littlefield's desk, a tall, sleek-looking man of middle age with a cold, steady eye and a smooth smile, stood near Carrington. The man was neatly attired and looked like a prosperous mine-owner or operator. But had the judge looked sharply at his hands when he gripped the one that was held out to him when Carrington introduced the man, or had he been a physiognomist of average ability, he could not have failed to note the smooth softness of the man's hands and the gleam of guile and cunning swimming deep in his eyes. But the judge noted none of these things. He had caught the man's name, Mitt Morton, and instantly afterward all his senses became centered upon what the man was saying. For the man spoke of conscience, and the judge had one of his own, a guilty one. So he listened attentively while the man talked. The thing that had been bothering the man for some months, or from the time it happened, he said, and he had come to make a confession. He was a miner, having a claim near Nogal. He knew Quinton Taylor, and he had known Larry Harlan. One morning, after leaving his mine on a trip to Nogal for supplies, he had passed close to the Larry's Luck Mine. Being on good terms with the partners, he had thought of visiting them. Approaching the mine on foot, having left his horse at a little distance, he heard Taylor and Harlan quarreling. He had no opportunity to interfere, for just as he came upon the men, he saw Taylor knock Harlan down with a blow of his fist. And while Harlan lay unconscious on the ground, Taylor had struck him on the head with a rock. Morton had not revealed himself then, fearing Taylor would attack him. He had concealed himself, and he had seen Taylor, apparently remorseful, trying to revive Harlan. These efforts proving futile, Taylor had rigged up a drag, placed Harlan on it, and had taken him to no gal. But Harlan died on the way. To Littlefield's inquiry as to why Morton had not reported the murder instantly, the man replied that, being a friend of Taylor, he had been reluctant to expose him. After the man concluded his story, the judge and Carrington exchanged glances. There was a vindictively triumphant gleam in Littlefield's eyes, for he still remembered the humiliation he had endured at Taylor's hands. He took Morton's deposition, told him he would send for him later, and dismissed him. Carrington, appearing to be much astonished over the man's confession, accompanied him to the station, where he watched him board the train that would take him back to Nogal. And on the platform of one of the coaches, Carrington, grinning wickedly, gave the man a number of yellow-backed treasury notes. "'You think I won't have to come back to testify against him?' asked the man, smiling coldly. "'Certainly not,' declared Carrington. 
You've signed his death warrant this time. Carrington watched the train glide westward and then returned to the courthouse. He found the judge sitting at his desk, gazing meditatively at the floor. For there had been something insincere in Morton's manner. His story of the murder had not been quite convincing. And in spite of his resentment against Taylor, the judge did not desire to add anything to the burden already carried by his conscience. Carrington grinned maliciously as he halted at Littlefield's side and laid a hand on the other's arms. "'We've got him, Littlefield,' he said. "'Get busy. Issue a warrant for his arrest. I'll have Danforth send you some men to serve as deputies, twenty of them, if you think it's necessary.' The judge cleared his throat and looked with shifting eyes at the other. "'Look here, Carrington,' he said. "'I have some doubts about the sincerity of that man, Morton. I'd like to postpone the action in this case until I can make an investigation. It seems to me that, that Taylor, for all his uh, seeming viciousness, is not the kind of man to kill his partner. I'd like to delay just a little, too.' and let Taylor get wind of the thing and escape? Not by a damn sight. One man's word is as good as another in this country, and it's your duty as a judge of the court here to act upon any complaint. You issue the warrant. I'll get Keats to serve it. He'll bring Taylor here, and you can legally examine him. That's merely justice. Half an hour later, Carrington was handing the warrant to a big, rough-looking man with a habitual and cruel droop to the corners of his mouth. "'You'd better take some men with you, Keats,' suggested Carrington. "'He'll fight, most likely,' he grinned evilly. "'Understand,' he added, "'if you should have to kill Taylor bringing him in, there would be no inquiry made.' And he looked at Keats and grinned, slowly and deliberately closing an eye. End of chapter 24